0: As you can imagine, searching for the perfect Rosh Hashanah joke is a lifetime endeavor. If you found it, you actually don't want to use it in order to save it for what you think is the right moment. If you haven't found it, you're kind of like Magellan searching for Shangri-La. You don't give up until your last breath. So that said, I'm going to break my rule. I think I found it, and I'm going to share it. But don't compare any other joke after this to this joke. So this past summer, my wife Lisa and I had the honor of attending. She was being honored by Chai Lifeline, a beautiful charity. One of the headliners for that evening was Kenny G, the superb saxophone player. Like many of you, I know some of his songs. What I didn't know is that Kenny G is actually Kenneth Goralik. His father, I'm not making this up, his father is Mordechai, his mother is is Evelyn, who is a nice Jewish girl from Saskatchewan. They settled in Seattle. Anyway, he has a story that he can't tell to any of the crowds that he plays in because they wouldn't get it. But you, he said to us, you're going to get the story. One Rosh Hashanah, he was asked by his rabbi to blow the shofar. I mean, you have Kenny G in the pews, so he gets up there, he blows the notes as they're called out. You can only imagine how perfect each of them must have been. And when it comes time for the, the tekiah godola, Kenny G does what he does. The man can hold a note. And I don't mean for a minute or two. He can practically hold it forever. Anyways, he says, I did what I do. And when he's done to go, he goes to sit back down. And people are running over to him, saying, Yeshekoach, Shana Tovah, an amazing job, Kenny. And then he sits down next to his mother. (laughs) She looks at him with that look and says, you know, Kenny, this is not a show. (laughs) My words exactly. Even with all of you here, and how remarkable and beautiful it is to see your faces, This is no show. If Rosh Hashanah is about time, which it is, and if life is also about time, which it is, then let it be said that this moment does what Judaism does so perfectly. In holding both life and faith, we are asked to think of them as both one in the same. Time and meaning, life and purpose. In the very beginning of the Torah, when Adam eats of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, we are told that he's overwhelmed with guilt. It thrusts him, this guilt does, into the depths of the garden, where he tries to hide. And then the mythical movement of God is felt wafting through the brush, and God calls out, "Ayeka, Adam, where are you? And of course, God knew where Adam was, and Adam knew where Adam was, and so it was a deeper question, not of space, but of time. Adam, understanding God's question, answers that he was frightened, and so he was hiding. From that moment, this question is not only the very first question ever asked of humanity, it is also the only question asked of humanity. At every moment we are told, this question is asked, where are you? Where are you spiritually? Where are you morally? How proud are you have been of your contact in the garden? Now I can't answer that question for you. That's something you have to work on, as I have to as well. But on this sacred day, standing in this sacred space, I must answer, where are we? The search came to me in a surprising way because it wasn't something I was looking to answer. But this past June, when the United States Supreme Court issued their takedown of Roe v. Wade, and in doing so, rescinded a woman's right in the United States to an abortion, the aftermath was so telling, so obvious, so squirmy, that it was standing right in front of me. Political and religious conservatives throughout the United States cheered. Liberals and progressives, they mourned. And the Jews? Well, that's an interesting story. On the right of the American-Jewish world, of the Orthodox who have aligned with the conservative movement in Israel, over Israel, excuse me, and religious rights in the United States, there was confusion amongst the Orthodox as to what to say. On the left of the American-Jewish world, of the Reform and conservative movements, there was confusion too. And that's because the American right wants a national ban from the moment of conception And the American left wants unfettered access to an abortion without regard to the gestation period. And for Judaism, both are unacceptable. In cases where the mother's life is in danger, where there is a threat to the emotional and mental well-being of the mother, Judaism to both the strident orthodox to the liberal left are lenient, always on the side of the mother. And in the statements that followed, From those Jewish groups, you could hear their nervous tiptoeing. On the most seminal political issue of the past 50 years, for the world's largest Jewish community outside of the state of Israel, in the the world's most powerful country, the Jews fear they are being judged. And that they cannot be counted on by their allies, in a way it stands to become the politically, what Jewish university students have faced privately when wanting to join student government bodies or social action clubs. It's called a purity test, whereby in order to belong, the Jewish student has to publicly disavow any allegiance to the state of Israel, to Jewish practice and identity, otherwise you're not to be trusted. When talking about anti-Semitism, most people think about the 1938 variety. You know, the kind with brown shirts marching down streets and smashing windows, pummeling Jews and then sending them off to death camps. But anti-Semitism can be as different and confounding as the Jews themselves. In the 19th century, throughout Western Europe, The story of individual rights and freedoms and emancipation erupted throughout that part of the world. And the Jews became a question because people couldn't agree on how to classify the Jews. There were lots of people who didn't want the Jews to integrate at all. Places, for example, like France and Germany and Britain. And they argued to deny Jews their equal rights. And one of the thought leaders was the German philosopher Fichte who said that the Jews are not a religion but they're a nation within a nation. Not Germans, but Jews. Not Frenchmen, but Jews. Not Britain, but Jews. Panicked and frightened, the Jews responded by saying, you're wrong. We're not a separate nation. We're a religion. By the way, that's where the word comes from. If you ever wondered where the word Judaism comes from, it's from 19th century Germany. It was created so that we sounded like Catholicism and Protestantism, but the word never existed until then. So the Jews say you got it all wrong. We're a religion, like all the other ones in this country, and we deserve equal rights and freedoms. It didn't resolve the issue then, and it's still being asked. For example, today there are those who say the Jews aren't a nation, but they're actually a religion. In their argument, they say that because Jews live as citizens in countries throughout the world, like Canada and Britain and America, therefore you can't suggest that we are a people. This is the argument of the anti-Zionist movement. It's in the manifesto of Hamas and Hezbollah. Because if the Jews are not a people, then they don't deserve a homeland. Only a nation is entitled to a nation-state. And since the Jews aren't entitled to their own land, they shouldn't have one. Are you getting the tragedy of this? It's like the story of the Jew who enters an Austrian travel agency in 1938 and says, I want to buy a ticket. Where to? The agent says. The man says, well, where are my choices? So the travel agent passes him a globe, the Jew turns the globe slowly around country after country, asking about it. And to each one, the agent says, they've closed their doors to the Jews. And the Jew turns to the agent and says, can I have another globe? Or as the Israeli author Amos Oz once wrote, time was in Europe, all the walls were covered with signs that said, Jews, go back to Palestine. So we went back to Palestine. And now everyone shouts at us, Jews, get out of Palestine. The moral of this story is is that in the fight to exist, the Jews fought any which way. With few to no options, Jews grabbed at whatever hope they could in order to survive. If by being a nation, we were cut off from rights and freedoms, then we're a religion. And if being a religion denies us self-determination and security, wait, we're a nation. The tragedy is is that there is nothing you could say to make peace with people who hate you. So you're sitting there, and hopefully listening, and asking, so what are we then? We are what the late Israeli author, Bet Yehoshua once said, the Jews are androgynous. We're not a religion, but we are a religion. We're not a nation alone, but we are a nation. The Jewish experience is understood in ways that are removed and outside the way that people in the modern Western world think about identity, faith, and belonging, because Judaism and Jews are an unusual and strange event in the history of humanity. Simply said, there is nothing else like us. If you open the dictionary to the word nation, it says that it is people who identify with each other through shared memory, culture, language and history. In fact, some historians say that the Jews are the mother of national identity. On the other hand, if you open the dictionary to the word religion, it is built on shared faith, rituals and tradition. To be a Jew is to be all of these things all at the very same time. Memory and faith, rituals and culture. To be a Jew is to be a child of the people of Israel. So this past summer, Lisa and I went to Washington, DC. And of course, we visited the United States Holocaust Museum. It is good in the way that museums can and should be good. It tells the story of the Shoah to an audience who, by and large, have no idea of what happened or why it happened. But if you go to the United States Holocaust Museum, to understand the threats to Jews today, you are in the wrong place. Because when the next wave comes, they won't be coming with torchlit marches and Nuremberg laws. Listen carefully. There will be no Auschwitz on American or Canadian soil. And that's because not only is there no institutional anti-semitism in North America, there is actually the opposite. Governments at every level, local, provincial, federal, are all swift and unanimous in condemning violence against Jews. When the police show up at your door after an anti-Semitic complaint, you know they aren't coming to take you away. But the failure of knowing good history is that you are doomed to think only what you know. And since most Jews only know the anti-Semitism of Nazism, That's what you always end up looking for. But if you were to ask what this resurgent wave of anti-Semitism is, if you're busy only looking for swastikas and roundups, by the time you're up to your neck in it, it'll be too late to do anything about it. So instead of 1938, think of 1492. Instead of Hitler, think of Torquemada. Or maybe second century Alexandria, Egypt. And before you get to squinting your eyes, And thinking it's all ancient history, the destruction of Alexandria's large, prosperous Jewish community was based upon only one accusation. The Jews don't think like we do. Historically speaking, the attacks on the Jews of Alexandria are also the first recorded event of anti-Semitism in the world. Later in Spain, they came for the Jews because After displacing the Muslim Moors from southern Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, yes, the king and queen from the story of Christopher Columbus, felt Spain was pulling apart and they needed something to unite the country. Christian faith was the one thing they could agree on, and so it began. In the final summation, the Inquisition wasn't instituted to get Jews to convert to Christianity. No, that happened about 100 years ago. In Cayman's monumental history on the Inquisition, he notes that whoever wasn't murdered in the the massacres ended up converting a hundred years before. So what then was the Inquisition? It was because no one believed the Jews. They didn't believe that they thought like Christians should think. They didn't believe they acted or lived like real Christians should. And in the end, they didn't believe that they could be trusted like real Christians. And so imagine if it was you who converted or maybe your parents did and now you've been brought to trial accused of not believing well enough into your converted faith and facing the task of defending yourself against something you can't prove you lose you're found guilty and not just you but your spouse your siblings and your children brought to the fire now to be burned alive because the one thing that the Spanish Christians could be united on was killing people who they judged didn't think or live like they did. And at that moment when you're brought there, would you not have the hollowing, painful, horrible realization that it was all for naught, that you gave it all up and still it wasn't enough? In the 1920s, In Stalin's Soviet Union, they declared Yiddish to be a national treasure. They supported Yiddish culture, paid for Yiddish language schools, and Yiddish literary critics were salaried by the Soviet government. But the Soviet support for Jewish culture was part of a larger plan to brainwash the Jewish community and coerce them, and it came at a price. Because Jews were awesome, provided they weren't practicing Judaism supporting Zionism, or learning Hebrew. And what's left of Jewish culture without religious practice, traditional text, Hebrew, and Zionism? 10 years later, the last of the Yiddish leaders of Russia were walked out in front of a firing squad, and they were murdered. They gave it all up. They hollowed themselves till there was nothing left of what they used to be, and still it wasn't enough. No, in our time there will be no brown shirts coming for you or me, but the selection is taking place. The anti-Semitism that haunts us now is about good Jews and bad Jews. Good Jews are the ones who agree. Bad Jews disagree. Good Jews agree that Palestine should be free from the river to the sea. Good Jews agree that we are not a people. Good Jews agree that life begins at conception. Good Jews agree to unfettered multiculturalism. Good Jews thank people for their lip service when we are murdered. And bad Jews, well, bad Jews carry guns, and they wear army uniforms, and they defend themselves. Bad Jews don't apologize. Bad Jews believe. Bad Jews hate the lessons that dead Jews teach the world. Bad Jews loathe that people can line up for hours to get into Anne Frank's house and then call our homeland fascist, bad Jews don't want to hear their preaching because we have learned enough on our own thank you. Be warned. Good Jews are welcome, and bad Jews are the enemy. On Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate time and faith We are asked not only what I have been, but what I can be. We are commanded not to give this up. If it is true that the Jews are the most unusual creation in human history, that I know that we persist for a reason. You are here because long before you there was a line of bad Jews who refused to give up. But the best definition of a bad Jew comes from years ago, what I heard from the mouth, of Natan Sharansky, the Soviet refusenik who spent years in a gulag for learning Hebrew and then applied for a visa to move to Israel when his wife was there, and then he was sent back to prison again. And at the sentencing trial, Sharansky stood up and said, to this court I have nothing to say, but to my wife and the Jewish people I say, next year in Jerusalem to those who hate and to those who judge to those who demand that i agree i have nothing to say but to you my people next year everywhere in the jerusalem of the land and of our dreams shnatova everyone please rise page 122